0: for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Jeff Abrams, founder and creative director of LA-based fashion brand Rails. Jeff launched Rails in 2008 with a $5,000 investment and aspirations to build a global brand. I wanted to ask Jeff how the pandemic has impacted his business plan and how he's managed to achieve growth every year so far. Welcome, Jeff.
1: Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you, Jill
0: thanks for being here. I mean, I hope I didn't jump the gun. I know that you had growth every year up to 2020. What did 2020 look like?
1: Well, of course, 2020, I think, was a challenging year for for everybody. Um, you know, there were a lot of things to deal with. First and foremost, obviously, COVID and, you know, trying to find the right balance between keeping our employees safe um, giving back to the community however we can, you know, there's social movements that were happening and of course, focusing on our business. So a lot of things to navigate, but I think all in all, you know, I'm really proud of the way our team sort of bound together. And, you know, we actually grew over the course of this year, which I think probably a lot of brands did not do. Um, So we had a really exciting year considering the circumstances.
0: That's awesome. Well, I introduced you as a fashion brand. I would say more so a lifestyle brand. Can you tell me about the brand's trajectory, uh, where you started, where you are now?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I think it's important to sort of go back to the beginning without giving you the full, full long-winded story. But, you know, I started about 15 years ago, really with no technical background in fashion. And, you know, the early days for me were very much trial and error and just figuring out how do you build a fashion brand. Um, you know, and so I was discovering things along the way in the first couple years and really the turning point came when I made a, a fabric in the shirting category that nobody had. It was it was a 10 cell rayon that felt almost like cashmere. So super soft and really this catapulted us onto the market and we went from, you know, a number of small stores into some really important specialty accounts like Intermix and Shopbop and eventually Neiman Marcus and Saks Fifth Avenue. So all with this idea of super soft hand feel and that's really been the guiding light of our brand over the years. Um, but, you know, at our core, we're really an effortless California brand um, that, again, focuses on building an emotional connection with our customer through that tactile nature of our, of our brand and, you know, trying to infuse more global European sophistication into every collection that we make.
0: I mean, is it getting more competitive? The soft – everybody's hyping soft clothing right now. That's what everybody wants to buy. Uh, are you put, promoting that more so in your messaging?
1: Yeah, well, certainly this year, you know, lounge and comfy work from home, particularly at the beginning of COVID, is was really top of mind for everybody. And I think that allowed us to resonate with the customer and and, you know, have product that they could wear at home, but also something transitional as people started going out in a safe way that they felt comfortable they could wear out and look fashionable. So, you know, I think we established that early on in our trajectory that Every season, we were delivering something that was versatile and comfortable, and that when COVID came around, it was we were top of mind for people, and so sort of a natural transition, um, you know, into the changing fashion environment.
0: Yeah. So I always think of you guys as great button downs, um, great plaid shirts, great blouses. Um, did you move from yeah something that maybe could read as a little bit more more formal than people are are wearing, like like you said, loungewear and sweatshirts? Did you move further into that that loungewear category
1: yeah well over the last 15 years it's been a slow evolution of the collection i would say the first you know five six years were really focused on shirting that was almost a hundred percent of our business but like any brand you have to evolve you know and if you stick with one product forever at some point people say okay like what's what's new so slowly we introduced new categories and part of it was what feels adjacent to the shirting category so um whether it was t-shirts or sweatshirts or you know cozy sweaters, things that felt you know connected to the hand feel. But also, we were always sort of the top half to denim. So that was really the initial expansion. And then over time, we've introduced bottoms and dresses and really the feminizing of the women's collection. And, and like you said, it's now very much a full lifestyle collection.
0: Yes. Well, you started with your eyes. You wanted to be a global brand. You, t- you started with a global, I guess, approach. What did that look like? What did that mean?
1: Well, the original concept for the brand was I had been living in Europe and I was traveling around on the Eurorail, um, you know, traveling to all of these European countries and, and feeling inspired by all this amazing architecture and art and history that I was seeing and thinking about how do I take all this inspiration and combine it with my Southern California upbringing. Um, and so that was sort of the origin of of the name Rails and what I always wanted to keep for, you know, the concept of every collection that we were developing. And so... You know, the early days was very much building a domestic business, grassroots. I was, you know, traveling around the U.S. I was driving in my car all over the place, walking into stores unannounced. You know, it was very much sort of door-to-door salesman. But I started building some momentum and people were really loving what I was doing. Um, and then international accounts started seeing the brand at places like Intermix or Shopop or some of these higher-end uh, retail stores and and asking me if they could carry the brand. And so what I ended up doing was traveling to a lot of these international markets and taking a similar approach to how I built the U.S. business, which was very grassroots, going to the stores, understanding the nuances of the business um, and what that local market wants. And so it's been, you know, over the last 15 years, a slow, deliberate evolution of of both the domestic business and international business.
0: Yeah. What would you say is the breakdown in terms of uh, your top markets? Uh,
1: U.S. is still our biggest market. And then um, we have a, a growing business in Europe and in the UK, so uh, the UK is, is a very big business, Canada is a big business, Australia, and then we have a lot of momentum in places like France and Spain and Scandinavia, and we're actually opening our European headquarters uh, this year. It's actually going to be in London, um, but it's for us to have you know, a footprint on the ground there where we can better service those accounts.
0: Yes, I was going to ask what's essential to launching success, successfully in an international market. It's about having uh, people on the ground. It's about having the right partners. It, does it just depend on the market?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately you do need to have partners, but in the beginning, you have to get momentum on your own. You know, no no partners going to want to come build your brand from zero. You have to put in the work. So that's what we were doing in the beginning. And I think once we had established that the brand was working in a lot of these markets, then. You know, I tried to find a local sales agent or distributor who could help us actually reach the stores on a day-to-day basis. And then one other thing we did was establish PR relationships in a lot of the key markets. So in the UK, in France, in Spain, Scandinavia, and a lot of these countries, we've paired together a sales agency with a local PR agency to help us manage each market as if it was our backyard. As opposed to, you know, I think a lot of brands from the U.S. sometimes will just throw things out there and, and hope that they stick in a foreign market when you know, you really need to appreciate what's happening on the ground and the local nuances.
0: Yep, Is the product that you're putting out there in each market, is it, does it vary quite a lot?
1: We, we try to stick to the core product that we're producing for the U.S., and it seems to be working in a lot of these foreign markets. But, yeah. you know, there are, there are um, you know, differences or sizing differences that you need to adjust your size scale pending what's happening in that market. But, yeah. you know, we try to make the core collection relevant for all the markets that we're selling in.
0: Yes, you mentioned some awesome retail partners that you have. Uh, What's your current breakdown of wholesale versus direct-to-consumer sales, and is that ideal?
1: Well, we built the business in the Wholesale Channel, so um, you know I think we owe a lot of our success to those partners that we've had over the years. But like many brands, we're now trying to migrate more direct-to-consumer so we can better manage the relationship between our brand and the customer. And you know, let them see all of the things that that we're doing uh, with the line both on the product expansion and and just the lifestyle. You know sometimes when you're dealing with wholesale accounts, there's a lot of factors that that can affect your business. You know sometimes it's the um, you know, solvency of those accounts. There's particularly during COVID, there's a lot of accounts that are sort of on the verge of bankruptcy and are they going to make it or not? Sometimes we don't get the display space that you really want as your collection evolves. If you're in, you know, a specialty account, you may only get one rack of product when now our brand needs, you know, 20 racks of product. Um, and so, you know, where we can with e-commerce and our own retail expansion, you know, giving the customer a much deeper experience with our brand so they can see all the things that we're doing.
0: Yes did you face those same uh, cancellations that I'm hearing across the board at the beginning of of covid in March and April?
1: yeah I mean everything came to basically a complete stop in March um, and understandably I think people were trying to figure out what was going to happen and and how to how do we proceed so um you know we tried to work with all of our partners both domestic and international to say like okay we understand you don't need us to give you more product at this point how do we sort of minimize the impact for both our partner and our own business and you know, we we very quickly migrated more to our e-com platform. And um, I think a lot of people saw success on on e-commerce and, and we can get more into sort of what was happening with our e-commerce before COVID, but we've seen an explosion of people shopping on our site and, you know, they still may be shopping in wholesale, but a lot of those people are now coming directly to us for, for purchasing our product.
0: Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your e-commerce site. Uh, did you kind of have to, yeah, soup it up, add some bells and whistles. I see some, some cool, uh, I guess features like shop shop Instagram is a is a prominent uh, menu just menu item. Uh yeah, what did you have to do to get it to get it ready, I guess?
1: Yeah, so we we've been investing a lot in improving the the e-commerce experience and even before COVID, we were our our site was up almost 150% in women's and about 200% in men's because we were investing in a lot of these things on the site. So, first was the product evolution, showcasing the full breadth of the collection. I think the user experience, so when a customer comes to the site, um, showcasing all of the great imagery we're doing from our editorial photo shoots, um, getting more in depth with product features, uh, and a better journey from start to finish, so that when they get to check out, there's no barriers to checking out. Actually, one interesting thing is, you know, almost 30% of our traffic is from international markets on our website, and but what we were recognizing oh, awesome. was that was that the domestic. Um, The domestic shopper was converting at a much higher level than the international shopper. And so what we did was introduce foreign currency checkout. So if you're coming from a market that sells in euros or in pounds, that you can now buy in your local currency. And very quickly, that increased our conversion with a lot of these foreign shoppers. So I think part of it is also just identifying, you know, where are their bottlenecks and where are you running into challenges and sort of optimizing um, that experience.
0: Yes, how are you driving customers to the site? Where are you uh, marketing advertising spending those dollars?
1: So we've started to spend more on customer acquisition. Early days was very organic. I think we were really focusing on our organic social channels and you know posting to Instagram and we didn't really have a marketing budget at all It was just word of mouth and and people sort of navigating on their own but in the past year or so we've really tried to focus on customer acquisition through a number of a number of channels so first on digital, you know we're we're applying a budget to Instagram and Facebook advertising. Um, I think a lot of brands are are in that space is becoming very crowded and, you know, trying to separate your brand both from a content perspective, but also messaging is, you know, you need to be thoughtful about that. We've also tested out new platforms like YouTube and Pinterest using a lot of the video content that we're doing.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, and each, each platform has sort of a different response. I think we've seen a lot of great response on Facebook and Instagram and, you know, their algorithm really delivers your message to your target demographic. I think YouTube has been a great place to sort of showcase, um, some of more of the video content. And this may be more for top of funnel, um, you know, potential customers, um, and brand awareness. And then Pinterest, uh, we, well, we probably haven't seen as much success on the Pinterest platform yet, but I do think, you know, over repeat exposure, people people are seeing the brand there and then coming to our site. So, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. What does it take to have such a, I guess, a presence across channels? Have you um, had to make new hires for uh, social media or is it just your marketing team? Who's doing all of this uh, creative, I guess? All yeah. The
1: we've we've been building up our internal team. We have, you know, a growing e-com and and digital team, but we're also using some third-party partners to help us place the budgets and figure out how to optimize the data to make sure we're reaching the right customers. So, we're doing all of the content creation in-house, and we're doing all of the e-commerce management once the customer gets to our uh, site into our ecosystem and then, you know, we have some various partners that will help us you know, navigate these, these different platforms. But so, so digital is really one of the main places where we're investing, but also, you know, we're going a little bit old school and doing in-home catalogs, like actual, you know, 30 page books where we deliver those to people's houses and they can, it's much, it's a much slower sort of, um, experience with the brand where you can really sit there and and flip through more storytelling and look at the editorial and the product. Um, but to get them in their homes as opposed to just a quick hit online.
0: Yes. Has that been an ongoing strategy? Have you been doing that for a while?
1: Well, we tested it last year, very small. Um, <laughs> you know, we sent out probably 50,000 books, which may sound like a lot, but actually investment is not that great. Um, and you know, part of where we send is to existing customers, and then you send to what would be prospects, so people who you know, may have an affinity for your brand or similar brands who are in your space. And, you know, we started to get some data back and we realized, wow, this is really, this is really working and people are, are really engaging with the brand. So we slowly ramped it up in each, each main season. We're now sending out both a women's book and a separate men's book yep. um, to engage the customer with, with the brand.
0: Very cool. What's your breakdown now of uh, male versus female shoppers? I noticed that you have a um, a dedicated Instagram account for for men, which would love to know how that I guess approach differs other than male yeah. versus female clothes. Go ahead. Yeah.
1: Well, for, for for many years I was threatening to do a men's collection, and then you know I really wanted to have clothes that I could wear, but the problem was the women's business was growing so fast, and we just never had time to dedicate to it. But about uh, you know two and a half years ago, we we made a commitment to launching the men's brand and started hiring an in-house design team and sales team and really focusing resources on building, you know, a real men's business. And so, um, it's been off to an amazing start. We're using a lot of the same fabric concepts that we're using in women. So, You know, once a guy wears it and feels he's like, wow, this is, you know, like no other shirt or product that I have and, you know, continues to come back. So it was a very small percentage of our business, but each season it's increasing as a percent to total and partly because we're doing a lot of this customer acquisition, both on digital and in home. And just just word of mouth, um, and I think also with a men's shopper, I think once a guy finds a brand that he loves, you know, he'll go and buy that same product in ten different colors. Yeah. Um, and so it's a lot about you know creating that consistency and reliability and quality um, with that male shopper.
0: Yeah, is that the lingo? Kind of that what what I hear a lot from uh, men's brands, kind of like the only shirt you need. Kind of more prescriptive than you would do with women.
1: Well, I think that is a bit of a bit of what's happening in the market. If you look at all the men's brands that are doing particularly, uh, social advertising, you see that they all have this sort of cookie cutter mentality, which is show a slow-mo of the product stretching and saying, this is, you know, (laughs) to your point, the only shirt you'll ever need, or, you know, the most versatile pants you'll ever wear. So I think there's something that's obviously working in that messaging, but you know, you also have to separate yourself and say like, how do you create a unique, a unique message or image, um, that resonates. And I think this is, you know, this has been something that's been very important for our brand is. We try not to chase every trend in neither in product or in marketing strategy because then you're just constantly pivoting and and the customer starts not to know what you stand for. And I think for us, you know, we've like I said, we've grown every year in top line revenue and profitability and customer acquisition because I think our goal has been slow, steady, deliberate growth as opposed to trying to capture every sale we could possibly capture. And sometimes, you know, you have to say no to opportunities or you can't just look at ROI and marketing. And I think that is, it's a bit of a trap when you're doing um, particularly digital advertising, where if you're targeting, you know, lower funnel existing customers, you can really hammer them on frequency and, and hit that customer 20 times and your ROI is going to go up because they're really engaged. So it'll look like you're doing really well, but at the same time, you might alienate 95% of your customers who are like, whoa, this is, this is too much. So I think it's a balance of, of making sure you slowly deliver your message, bring in new customers, and, and don't just try to get every sale for the sake of, of getting a sale. You have to protect your brand along the way.
0: How does that print catalog tie into that strategy? Are you able to attribute sales to, to those who get the catalog? What's going on there?
1: Um, yeah, so you know anybody who's in marketing or is paying attention to how all of their different marketing channels are working will notice that everyone, every platform wants to attribute all sales to themselves. <laughs> yes. So, you know, and they'll give a very long window of attribution and they'll say, wow, we, you know, 10 times ROI on this. But, you know, I think that the honest thing is when you're marketing to a customer, you want to have them experience your brand on many different platforms and many different places in their life. So it may be on digital, it may be in home, in store, word of mouth. Um, and all of these things are like a confluence of, of, you know, experience that will lead the customer to purchasing. Um, but I think if you sort of pare down, uh, you know, each of these platforms and really shorten the attribution window, you can get a better understanding of, of which ones are working, which ones are not. And, and sometimes it's not the platform. It also may be the content that you're delivering on that platform. So we spend a lot of time doing AB testing, you know, testing static ads versus motion graphics versus feed versus video. Um, and just understanding little by little, like, what is the data telling us that's what's working? And then go deeper into that. Yeah. Um,
0: are influencers are all- working?
1: Influencers? Yeah. I mean, we've, you know, uh, one of the things that put us on the map in the early days was that we had a lot of celebrities and influencers wearing our product. Yeah. And it was because they genuinely loved it. It wasn't because we were paying people. You know, we had Giselle was wearing our shirt at the Super Bowl and, nice. and you know, Kate Moss was showing up and Beyonce and we were doing men's Matthew McConaughey, and Leonardo DiCaprio. and. Of course, people were seeing those things and saying, wow, this brand is doing something special. Um, but I think because of the comfort element, they were really reacting to it very much like a, a customer would and just loving the product and, and wanting to wear it in their everyday life. So yeah. I think we we're very fortunate that that was a part of our early evolution. And, you know, we've tried to keep that authenticity as part of our influencer relationships as we've grown. Um, you know, as as we have more specific drops or new category launches, we've done some, you know, formal collaborations with with, uh, influencers or tastemakers to make sure that we're talking about a certain category when it's launching. But, you know, I think the organic element of people wearing your product is, is more valuable than just, you know, paying somebody to wear it.
0: Well, you're newer into uh, the, the owned physical retail channel. Uh, I know you have a great store in Soho, and I know that you had plans to open stores in San Francisco and L.A. Not sure if that's still <laughs> in yeah. the works. What's going on there?
1: Yeah, well, it's a bit of a crazy time to be opening retail stores, um, as you can right. imagine. But, um, you know, we, we had planned to open this Soho store, which is our first, first location as our flagship um, in New York is on the corner of Broom and Green, and we we're supposed to open it in March. And of course, that got delayed and we opened it in September. Um, But the store is beautiful. It's, you know, we sort of brought our California lifestyle to the center of Soho. It's on a corner across from a lot of great um, higher end contemporary brands. And um, the foot traffic in Soho right now is down from what it normally would be because you don't have the international tourists and you have a lot of, you know, locals who've probably gone to um, the suburbs, you've gone to Florida. But I think people who are going into the store are loving the environment Um, They're loving the experience and we're converting at a very high level for people who are coming in the store. Um, And I think our view on retail is that, you know, we're taking a long term view here that ultimately people will want to go back into stores in some capacity. Um, You know, and it just depends on how how are they going to want to interact with the brand in the future. So Soho, we imagine, will become a really great location for us as things normalize. We're opening a store in San Francisco in this probably March or April of this year. We're in our build out phase right now great. Uh, We've identified a location in Los Angeles. Um, We're also doing a pop-up in Paris, April, May, and June. Oh, great. And, you know, I think we're cautiously moving forward, but we're optimistic that our strategy uh, will work and people are excited about the evolution of the collection and being able to see everything in one place.
0: Pop-ups versus permanent. Did you do uh, pop-ups in all of those uh, areas, those cities where you're opening permanent locations? Is that kind of Step one, step two, or are you just going all all in?
1: Well, we we did a pop-up in Los Angeles at The Grove about yeah. two years ago as our first retail test. And it was great. I mean, it was, you know, many customers coming in already knowing the brand. And we introduced the brand to a lot of new customers and, and you know, tourists who were shopping there. Yeah. Um, so that gave us confidence that, okay, this this platform and the experience can work. We also are getting a ton of data from both our wholesale channel because we're selling it at a lot of the top department stores. We're seeing which markets work. We're getting a lot of data from our e-com platform and from, you know, the in-home catalogs, et cetera. And so I think we know where our customers are. Um, and places where we know they're located, we're pretty confident if we open a thoughtful store that will be successful. Places like Paris in new, new markets. Yeah that's more of discovery for us. So we're doing this three month pop-up partly as the retail experience, but also more of a marketing brand awareness strategy. Um, And this goes back to, you know, how do you build an international market is, you know, finding ways not just to, you know, market to them digitally or have your product in a wholesale channel, but, you know, have a footprint where they can come and see your brand and, and feel like it's a local brand. And, And that's part of this sort of first international retail strategy for us.
0: Yes. Is all of your production happening on the West Coast? Where are you producing?
1: Um, We're producing all over the world now. You know, a lot of things we we produce in either China or Vietnam. We're producing some categories in uh, Turkey. We're actually going to be launching a denim collection, women's denim collection this fall, which... Um, I'm sure you'll hear more about as it gets closer to launch. Uh, and then we're doing some stuff in the U.S., um, you know, just depending on the category. And, you know, we've built these long-term relationships with a lot of our uh, suppliers over the years. You know, some of them we've been working with for more than 10 years. So, nice. you know, there's a shorthand on, on um, you know, how we're developing product every year.
0: Yeah. Did last year teach you anything about uh, your supply chain? Make any uh, big changes there?
1: Well... You know, when COVID happened, I think we realized we needed to pivot in what we were making. You know, all of those products that we anticipated selling in the wholesale channel on our website weren't necessarily relevant in the volumes that we had anticipated. So we very quickly had our factories migrate to making, um, non-medical masks out of a lot of this great fabric that we created, but was no longer relevant for button downs or, you know, different products. We, we put those into masks. And so we very quickly made those available on our website and we donated more than 150,000 masks to schools and frontline workers and, you know, people who needed them. Um, and I think it was a great initiative for us to like, you know, give something back to the community while also keeping our factories busy while the normal product channels, um, had slowed down.
0: That's awesome. Well, I was going to ask about kind of, uh, yes, how you you spoke about your spoke out about your brand values, what your customer has come to know about your uh, your values, especially um, with all that has happened in the in the last year, um, in the wake of George George Floyd's killing, we had the election and rioting, and every brand had commented on. It seemed like every single instance. <laughs> what was your approach? Yeah.
1: Well, I think, you know, like I said earlier, this, this year, 2020 has been very challenging for brands to navigate both their business, but all of the other things that were happening in the world. And I think, you know, one of the things that's been, um, at the core of our business is culture and the sense of family and, you know, first employee still works at rail, second employee, third employee, and we've built this family style environment, you know, over the years. And I think that's sort of been our guiding light in terms of how, how do we, how do we approach the world? How do we, um, you know comment and take authentic action, you know, in, in response to a lot of things that, that were happening. And I think, you know, it's for a lot of brands, if you feel like, okay, you need to say something to participate in the dialogue that's happening, but, you know, you need to do more than just say something you need to actually, you know, make a contribution. So with COVID, like I mentioned, we, you know, we started making, um, non-medical masks, which we donated across the country. Uh, we, we acquired, um, KN95 masks, which we donated to hospitals, Great. Um, we, in the wake of sort of the social justice movements, we, um, we made it be the change t-shirt, which we donated a hundred percent of the profits, uh, to, you know, different charities. And, you know, we also try to recognize what are the things that we've done well and where are the things that we need to improve, um, you know, both in the diversity of our marketing of our staff, um, and, you know, just making sure that we're actually making sort of authentic change as opposed to just saying things.
0: Yes. On that note, um, what is your brand doing in terms of, Sustainability top of mind. Mind, do you have um, large, big goals for twenty twenty one or beyond?
1: Yeah, so sustainability is is an important topic I think for our for our business, and we're constantly trying to improve how we're making our products um, by by bringing in you know recycled cottons and you know being aware of the processes that we're using, and, and even in our denim capsule that we're launching in in the fall, we're using. Um, a lot of recycled and sustainable denim products um, mm. and trying to reduce the, the water waste that's part of that process, um, you know, and not just only for the environment, but also, you know, I think our company as a young company, our, our employees and our Rails family cares about making some some difference um, and that it's, you know, it's about this journey and it's not just about selling product.
0: Yes. Tell me about your Rails family. Is everyone still working in L.A.? I know that at least one is not. <laughs> um, yeah. And yes, is everyone working from home? Can this can this go on? Uh, do you need to be together to, I guess, pull off a fashion brand?
1: Yeah. I, you know, there's certainly challenges with people working remotely. I think we've done. Like most companies, you've ha- we had to adapt very quickly. And I think we've, we've all gotten used to having Zoom meetings or, you know, virtual conferences. You know, definitely one of the challenges when you're working with a tactile product is you need to be there to feel it, to do your fittings and to, and to interact with the actual product. I think if you're working in, you know, more of a... a you know, marketing or sales or accounting or customer service. Those are things maybe that you can do more remotely. But, you know, our teams who are in design or in tech or in product development, it really requires that they periodically go in the office. So in um, our warehouse, which has been shipping, you know, the, all of these e-com orders that have come in over the course of this last year. So again, we're trying to be thoughtful about how do we rotate people in and out, make sure we're doing social distancing, everybody wearing their masks. And um, it's been a balancing act, but I think, People have gotten used to, you know, having these virtual connectivity, and, and I think we've been really productive, um, you know, considering the circumstances.
0: Yes. Well, I mentioned, we've talked a little bit earlier about uh, the fact that you had increased your top-line revenue, profitability every year. Uh, what's been your, I guess, stance on investors? Have you taken on any investment? Are you open to that now?
1: So the first, I would say, 12 years of the business, I had no no investor, no partner, you know, I started with $5,000 and, you know, little by little I was reinvesting it and I, you know, I made some hats and some hoodies and I sold them and then I, you know, reinvested the money and I made more just little by little slowly growing the business, never borrowed money. Um, and you know, but I, we got to a point about two and a half years ago where we were sort of at this turning point in our brand where we really have the ability to scale both on the organizational side of the business, um, and then also on the brand marketing side, which is investing in digital acquisition, um, e-commerce experience, retail, and so I felt like I had wanted a partner, you know, who could help provide some expertise. So we did have a minority investor come into our business about two years ago, and that itself was was a very long process of trying to find the right partner who shared the vision, um, who wasn't who wasn't just looking at our business as you know for a return on their investment, but that really. Fit into the culture of what we were trying to do, and and was there to support us as opposed to sort of put you know financial constraints or requirements on the business.
0: Yep. How hard was that? What what was the process? And uh, do you feel like you <laughs> made the right choice there? You have. Yeah, to I mean, it was.
1: Yeah, it, it was. You know, uh, obviously having having run the business by myself for twelve years, twelve plus years, it was definitely a new experience to have a partner and and you hear, you hear some war stories about, Mm -hmm. you know, entrepreneurs who bring partners in and then, you know, when things are good, it's great. But then if things go awry, then it's, you know, it's, it's hard to manage that relationship. But I'm super happy with the partner that, that we brought on. Um, They have a lot of direct to consumer experience, retail experience. So, you know, we're using a lot of their expertise to help understand some of these new initiatives that we're doing and also professionalizing our business because Mm -hmm. this family style that we have is, is, great for morale and unity and moving forward. But also, you know, as you scale, there needs to be some level of hierarchy and, and, um, you know, corporate strategy that can allow you to really scale the business. Right um, but, but, you know, like I said, we, you know, started with $5,000 investment and, you know, to date we've probably done more than six, $700 million at retail. That's and, great. you know, I'm I'm, You know, I, 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 along the way, I haven't really been thinking about it, but when I look back and I think about our journey, it's really been about discipline and, you know, thoughtfulness. And again, not taking every order just to take an order. And probably we could have grown faster than we have. But to me, what's been important is to build an enduring brand that people respect. For the type of product that we're doing and the type of culture that we've built, as opposed to trying to be some shooting star that's you know has three incredible years of success but can't sustain the business.
0: Yes, what makes a a, um, a fitting retail partner? What what order would you not take?
1: Um, I think we have stores approaching us all the time who want to okay. carry the brand, you know. And I think you have to think about your distribution platforms. You don't want to be everywhere a customer can find you. If they walk into every single store and they find you on every corner, then you know, you, you become too ubiquitous and there's no, there's no novelty with, with purchasing your brand. I think sometimes you know there's an opportunity for you to do offshoot labels or private label or sub labels. And maybe there's a lot of revenue there, but at the same time, you, you divide your attention, you divide your resources. The customer gets confused about who you are as a brand. Um, and long-term, that leads to, you know, brand deterioration. And then I think also, you know, going into this digital space when people are advertising, if you start, you know, offering a lot of discounts or you're always on sale, you know, you might increase your revenue, but then the customer starts getting trained to buy your product at a discount. And then it's, you can't get out of that. And Customer's not going to want to buy you at full price. So we've been very careful not to offer discount. We don't have a sales section on our website. We only do a couple sales per year at the times where the market is doing sales, which would be like Black Friday, Cyber Monday, maybe Memorial Day sale. But otherwise, you know, if you want to buy our product, you sort of have to buy it at full price. And I think you know, thinking about how all these things, each individual experience, while it may seem minor it adds up to a, a more complete experience for the customer and you have to be thinking about the psychology of what it does for your relationship with the customer.
0: Yes, what what do you know about your customer's loyal, customer loyalty?
1: Um well, I think we're getting the most data from our own e-commerce website and we're seeing that, you know, almost 50% of our customers are returning customers and right. you know, the lifetime value is quite high. And actually our our average order value is north of $250. So, a oh, typical yeah. product that we would sell is, you know, around $150 for a shirt. So most people who are coming to our site are buying more than one product and they're loving the experience and they're coming back. So I think, you know, this is something that we'll look at when we're evaluating whether or not our marketing strategies are working is, you know, you can't just look at your cost per acquisition on the first transaction. If you have a high lifetime value for that customer, maybe it's worth it to spend a little more to get them in because you know that you're going to keep them. So, I think focusing on the retention of those customers. So, you know, VIP treatment and sending them thoughtful email marketing um, surprise and delight. You know, we actually did something interesting in, in, during COVID, we took our top 150 customers and we sent them customized rail sweatshirts with their name embroidered on them Um, just as a gift, like unsolicited. Here's a gift for you, you know, going into COVID to, you know, to keep you cozy (laughs) and, and you know, most of these customers are like, wow, no brand has ever just unilaterally sent me <laughs> a customized sweatshirt just because I'm a good customer. But I think, you know, thinking about how, how do you sort of keep that customer engaged and make them feel like, okay, they're not a transaction, but they're a human being who you're connecting with. Um, and, you know, I think that's important even as you scale to make sure you're, you're maintaining personal relationships with people.
0: I love that. Have you uh, played into Amazon at all? Did you, have you had an Amazon strategy? Have you avoided it at all costs?
1: Uh, well, Amazon, again, this goes back to, to the concept of, you know, you have to pick and choose the, the orders that are, that are going to be good for your brand. And certainly there's a lot of potential business there. I think for us, Amazon is, is trying to get a bigger foothold in contemporary fashion. I don't know if our customer right now is looking to Amazon to purchase contemporary goods. I think maybe if they see something is sold out on one of their normal shopping channels, maybe they would go and search that product on Amazon. So we've been a little bit slow into the sort of Amazon world. Um, But again, you have to be mindful that there's a lot of third party sellers that can be selling your product. You have to be diligent and watchful so that, you know, you don't find your product at a discount on Amazon marketplace. So um, it could be a very successful platform. We just haven't spent a lot of time there yet.
0: Specific goals for 2021. What are you looking forward to? What are you uh, challenging yourself to do?
1: Yeah, I mean, I always feel like every year is like the first year we've been in business and there's all these initiatives and exciting things we're doing as a company. So um, I think, you know, number one, product is, is always king for us and making sure we're evolving the product categories. So going deeper into the evolution of the collection, both in women's, expanding the men's collection, um, you know, building a more robust direct to consumer experience so that's on, on e-commerce introducing the brand to new uh, to new customers through digital acquisition and through these in-home catalogs and then of course you know i think thoughtfully expanding our retail brick and mortar platform you know and looking for not huge footprint stores but more you know neighborhood experience stores yep. and and then also international expansion um, you know, and continuing to build on all this great sort of groundwork that we built over the last 10, 15 years.
0: And denim. I'm so excited about denim. Anyway, I am, yeah. I'll check that out for sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, we'll have, to, we'll have to have a follow-up conversation about the denim.
0: Yes, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, Jeff, yeah. this was so great. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And I'm glad I got to tell you a little bit about the Rails story.
0: Same. <laughs> That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Please head to the review section on iTunes to give us a rating and tell us what you think. Thanks for listening to the Glossy Podcast.